Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, February 3rd. We begin with a look at the impact the COVID-19 pandemic has had on our nation's nonprofit organizations. We speak with a professor of business from McMaster University on his research into the topic. How has the family dynamic been at your house over the past year? It has been a very challenging time and the stress can most definitely take a toll. We get some tips on how to strengthen the family bond with the director of the Childhood Anxiety and Regulations of Emotions Research Group from McGill University. Residents are fighting plans for a gravel quarry on the west side of Calgary. We get details on the proposal and why community members are concerned. We catch up with former Olympian and Bear Spa resident Katrina lemay Doan. And finally, while office meetings and job interviews may be virtual these days, there are still ways to look both professional and appropriate through the screen. We get some pro tips for success from a Calgary-based recruitment professional. In time of crisis, nonprofit organizations have found themselves in a lot of cases with an increased user base but decreased operations. But could this pandemic lend to maybe create the perfect opportunity for some of these organizations to transform and update what they do and how they do it? Joining us is Brent McKnight, an associate professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University with more on this topic. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, when we talk about nonprofits, what areas of the pandemic have have most affected these organizations, or have any any really been untouched? Uh, yeah, most most of these nonprofits have uh, had a, a pretty rough year. Uh, those that have had in person programming, obviously, quite a bit more disrupted than those uh, that might have already been uh, online to some degree. A lot of organizations have these. You know, uh, in-person programs like uh, sports programs as front doors to engage kids or respite services for families. Um, we even talked to some museums and and um, and symphonies. Uh, obviously, cultural uh, mandates were, were affected uh, quite a bit. So, Brian, do you, do you think having to pivot and in some ways modernize the way these organizations fundraise amid the pandemic could actually help them and, and be beneficial to them in the long term? You know, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think no one would say that the pandemic is, is helping the nonprofit organizations, uh, obviously, um, but, but many uh, nonprofits making investments in technology and process right now uh, over the pandemic. Um, I think it's important to realize that you know, fundraising is not an easy thing to do. You know, if you've ever been in sales, you know that selling is hard and, and fundraisers don't even have the benefit of selling a tangible good or service. They're, they're selling ideas and impact. Um, so, so nonprofits that want to shift the fundraising, they have to make an investment uh, in a direct mail campaign or some other way of outreach, and that takes investment, and that also takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they do that, that that can definitely um, can definitely help. Yeah, I mean, be creative, think outside the box. Not only does it help you now during the pandemic, but coming out the other side too. If if you've been somewhat an organization that's able, you know, been able to to step up above the others, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Uh, the challenge for many nonprofits is that the funding arrangements are often driven towards program-based funding. You know, foundations and donors mm-hmm. like you and I, we like to give to the point of impact. We like a specific program, and that that's, that's makes some sense. Um, but as a result, the typical nonprofit doesn't have a very high overhead. Uh, and you know, well, the, well, that makes some sense. The flip side of of low overhead is lower organizational capabilities fewer employees that are able to, um, right. you know, work with the organization to adapt uh, during a time like this. So, so I think, you know, the, 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 it's more than just uh, nonprofits that need to, you know, work to invest in their ability to fundraise, but it's also incumbent on funders and, and foundations uh, to think differently about how they engage with their, their uh, nonprofits and, and to look at investing in the organization that delivers critical programming and not just in programs. 
And I know, I know here in, I think it might have been nationwide, Brent, but here in the city, for example, the use of technology, for example, the Salvation Army kettles that we do see at the malls during Christmas time this year uh, went to digital, so you could just do a yeah. tap card. Uh, but I'm wondering if uh, if other organizations, if you're seeing this as an increase, uh, you know, such as holding online uh, silent auctions or events completely online, which would, down the line, instead of booking a hotel ballroom, save an organization a lot of money for, for a charity fundraiser. Are you seeing the tech being very much, you know, uh, I guess you'd say uh, embraced? I mean, I think there's two sides to that. Um, yeah, the Salvation Army cl- cre- clearly had a, a challenge. <laughs> How do they get out in front of people? This is a, a major part of their village's fundraise. Yeah, and I think online, um, you know, uh, the ability to, to provide money online and, and to give money online is increasing and will increase. Um, uh, but uh, the events that they hold are often holding multiple purposes. You know, so you have a big gala, which is very expensive. Um, but it does a lot more than just bring in money. It connects to them to their community. Uh, and, and events that are held on like, like big rides or big walks, um, those don't have the same gravitas uh, when they're done online. So some events can go shift online, um, but I think some events are going to struggle to find you know, real purchase in an online environment. And yet at the same time, it seems like people are really kind of digging deeper this year, realizing that everybody's in a, in a you know, tough situation and maybe donating a little bit more. Yeah, uh, you know, and I think the the jury's a little out on that, uh, whether that, that's happening. Uh, I imagine Canada did a study and found that 70% of charities are reporting decreased revenues. Um, you know, and, and I think a lot of the charities, uh, you know, in 2020, um, a lot of money flowed in uh, from foundations and from government. Um, but uh, as we look to 2021, that's when most nonprofits are, are more concerned, uh, as maybe some of that funding dries up, uh, and as they have to try to um, figure out how to navigate the last year of this uh, this crisis. Well, very interesting, and you know, fingers crossed that these nonprofits can get things together and have success post pandemic. Thanks for your time yeah, this morning. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Cheers. As Brent McKnight, associate professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. 609 on the morning news. How can we build stronger family relationships and teach resilience to ourselves and our children as the pandemic rages on? Tina Montroy is an assistant professor and director of the Childhood Anxiety and Regulations of Emotions Research Group at McGill University. And she joins us now with some tips on how to get closer to your loved ones amidst the pandemic. Good morning to you, Tina. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It's an interesting dynamic because we say getting you know, closer to your loved ones. We've been very close to our loved ones for the past 11 months physically, but it might not be going all that smoothly. Uh, that could be an, uh, the, the potential, right? Correct. Um, I mean, physical distance isn't necessarily emotional connectedness or emotional uh, proximity, right? So I think this brings us about the notion of, of, of just focusing our attention on that. Professor, it's been a tough one with the kids. I mean, the mental health issues that are arising, it's stressful for them. The anxiety, whether they're at school or at home, all of it coming together, it's a big one for young people. So how, how, do, we, how do we deal with that? Yes, well, this is, a, this is very true. And so the idea is that as parents, uh, as some of us know, whenever our children or we're concerned about our children, whether they're doing poorly or there's something going on or not, what ends up happening in wanting to really care for them, um, we're putting a lot of attention on them. We may actually be even transmitting or transferring some of our own insecurities onto them. And the notion here is that, that that's good because it, it means that we're caring parents. But first and foremost, the most important thing, and that's what the article talks about, is the importance of really turning the attention on ourselves. What is it that we can do as parents to really manage 
everything having to do with pandemic-related stress, so that, in essence, we're just better at being able to then assist our child. We did really the notion of putting on our masks first, which we were accustomed to on planes, if mm-hmm. we recall, traveling at some point. So, so uh, Tina, where do we start? Because, yeah, we're stressed. We're out of routine. And I think that is one of the reasons the kids might even be bouncing off the walls because they're out of their routine. They've been in school. They've been out of school. They a lot of the times can't see their friends or, you know, be involved with their sports. Where's a good start point to, to change that mindset? Yes, absolutely. So I think two things. First and foremost, I think the first thing is to say is that a lot of us are going through the same motion. I think it's really about decatastrophizing, not making something bigger than it is, and really trying to normalize. It seems like a very simple step, but it removes a lot of the high expectations that we place upon ourselves. That's the first step. The other step is that a lot of us parents, because we're so torn between our work, being in our home, and caring for children, is that a lot of the time, the first thing we'll cut on, we'll compromise, is self-care things that we do that are good for us, that make us feel relaxed, make us feel like we've done something good for ourselves. And I think we really have to turn the uh, focus on that and ensure that we're prioritizing self-care as parents. That's the two two first and most important things. Professor, I like what you said earlier, you know, that uh, the kids kind of mirror our emotions and then how we're behaving. So if we want to build resiliency, for example, I know that's a big thing in, you know, what you're talking about. So resiliency, how how do we, you know, self-care is important, obviously, yes, but resiliency, how can we build that and then, you know, transfer that to them? Yes. So I think right now what, what the article talks about is that we, we're putting a lot of, of, of concern, worry, and importance on achievement right now. A lot of things have been published, like will our children be delayed academically um, if, we are, if they're in the current context? I think right now we have to really prioritize, yes, academics. I mean, it, it's critically important. But also to, to really focus on what can we teach our children? What can we teach them in terms of emotion regulation? So some of the things that we can do, for example, is just really... Uh, talking about our emotions. Whenever our children, right now, what, what ends up happening when we're really overwhelmed as parents is that if our children are having a tantrum or they're reacting, a lot of the times, not only will we match the same kinds of negative emotion expression, but we'll sometimes even exceed it. So one of the first things that we can do as parents to really model this emotion regulation is first and foremost just to validate, to accept the emotion, regula- the emotion expression that our children are manifesting. It seems easier said than done, but it's really the ability to just be available emotionally for our children as opposed to sort of reacting strongly trying to tell them to be quiet to get over it we want a quick fix because we're so busy but these things take time and they do take time to basically invest in our children as well so it's not an easy task but it can be done if we become mindful of it Another, uh, you know, point that you make is uh, having common time with the family. And I think this is interesting because, yes, we have been in the same house, but we might be on different floors of the house, different rooms, doing our own thing. So what do you mean by common time? Yes. So, again, going back to the initial point is that, you know, because we are spending so much time in our home, maybe we've gone lax on certain things that we used to be doing, for example, maybe eating together or doing common things together with the assumption that, you know, we're always together. So I guess that's fine. But again, the notion that, you know, can we do things that overlap in terms of interest, in terms of values? Um, And so I think this is critically important because it's through those common activities, that relational aspect 
that essentially connectedness is developed. And once we're connected with our children, we have emotions such as empathy, for example. We have greater compassion that arise of that. And it's through that connectedness that those more supportive parenting practices can come more naturally uh, to us. We can leverage that more. Yeah, and I do, you know, we have got a little more time on our hands, obviously. And I, sometimes I'll just go and hang out in my kid's room. And it's amazing what they will start to talk to you about when you give them the opportunity to just open up and, and you don't pressure them too much. Absolutely. I think a lot of the times because we're so involved in programming everything for our children, mm-hmm. what ends up happening is that we have this sense that we always have to be the initiators of these kinds of conversations, even with, with how they're dealing with our, with our teens. How are they dealing with the pandemic? One thing that I've recommended to parents is really just kind of ask them, what are you doing? As opposed to us suggesting what we think that they should be doing. Because, you know, a lot of these teens, uh, we've interviewed some, they're, they're, quite, they're, they're quite creative and, and they're doing, you know, some of them are are more resilient than we sometimes give them the credit. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, as a you know a childhood anxiety and regulations of emotions uh, specialist, picking that perfect time, and this is something in my house, I have two teens, uh, you know, finding that time to talk with them, and I, I think it's an interesting uh, dynamic because you want to get that message across, but you don't want to feel like you're attacking them. So any, any good strategies to approach these important conversations? Yeah, well, you know, it could be as simple as kind of like, you no, know, just mentioning that we read a brief article on this today and it, bring, it brought the, the idea of like, you know, just discussing that with them, um, kind of really asking them open-ended questions, like really asking the questions where it'll have to be filled by them. And I think really, so at the beginning, we may have some closed-in teenagers and that's because, you know, maybe we're, we haven't been engaging as much in this kind of dialogue, but I think we have to start somewhere. And one of, one of the ways we can do that, people love to feel validated. People love to feel like they're purposeful that you know we we care about what they have to think without giving our opinion so this is a position that we can really take as parents if we're new at this game of connecting with our teenagers absolutely love it thank you so much for your time this morning great conversation thank you so much for having me again appreciate it that is tina montroy assistant professor and director of the childhood anxiety and regulations of emotions research group at mcgill university A gravel pit proposal on the western outskirts of Calgary has been denied in the past, but area residents fear this new proposal before Rocky View County could get passed this time around. Former Olympian Katrina LeMay-Doan lives in Bearspot near the site and joins us now with details on yesterday's meeting. Good morning, Katrina. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. I know this is one that you're very passionate about. Obviously, you live right in that area. So residents have been fighting against this gravel pit for years. Tell us about this proposal. Yeah, and, you know, I do live in the area where we are allowed to vote, but uh, as you've seen on Facebook, uh, this affects the the north part of Calgary and all these new subdivisions as well. So uh, this proposed gravel pit is on a 600-acre property. Um, For perspective, it's about probably one kilometer, maybe 800 meters north of the Rocky Ridge Y. And, um, you know, a lot of residents already say they can hear, uh, residents of Calgary and and Rocky View can hear uh, the gravel pits already. Well, this is 600 acres. It will destroy 48 wetlands. The entire area is uh, considered country residential. The the proposal was um, denied in 1994 and 2010. First of all, it didn't uh, go according to um, the county plan because it is considered country residential. Um, and also it was uh, too densely populated. Well, that was back in 2010. It's now 2021. They can 
they've continued to uh, approve development up until November of 2020, and now the proposal has not changed except it's larger. It will now include crushing. So this is from, uh, I believe they said 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., five days a week, reduced hours on Saturday. But this will be crushing. Open mine, it would be the second largest open mine in Canada. Wow. And this would contaminate the Pascapoo Aquifer, which is the largest mm-hmm. aquifer within Western Canada, which would affect drinking water, contaminants in the air. Uh, the health hazards are mind-boggling. And think of the winds we get. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of my friends in Citadel already said, well, when the winds blow, we get already that dust. And you don't, well, you don't want to know what's in that dust. It's not just dust. In- incredible, Katrina, that, you know, I, I live on the south side, and this is, uh, uh, Sue brought, brought this to my attention a couple of days ago. Do you think, are, and are you surprised by how many Calgarians are unaware of this? Uh, yes. And yet, uh, you know, what has been interesting. I mean, I am not an expert. Uh, so the residents, there is an incredible team of volunteers. They have they have put resources together. I don't have that capacity. Um, they have put resources. They have got independent. And let's remember what that word means. So independent experts. So people who are not biased and their duty of care is to give a report. So they, those reports have been done. And then the county turns around and says, well, we have um, eight, I believe it was eight yeses. Those were from some residents in Cochrane and people in southeast Calgary <laughs> and uh, contractors. But yesterday, watching watching the live meeting, there were parts that were horrific, and there were parts that were so inspiring. There were, I mean, there have been 40, 476 opposition letters. Every single person who's allowed to write an opposition letter said no. They have unanimous no's. Um, there were 83 videos submitted. So these are from youth to retirees to people who have been here for 30-some years, videos of people... You know, because you can't be there in person and mm-hmm. there's no back and forth, the, the residents have no way to communicate or, or be asked questions by the council. These were videos saying, please, this is the third time, please do not destroy um, our kids' health. And, you know, it, it, that was inspiring. But um, some of the stuff that was put forward and listened to and the questions and, and some of the presentations and some of the things I heard, we're, we're shocking. It just it's it I, it's mind boggling to me that we're we're kind of going backwards with a lot of this stuff. You know, a gravel pit, a big gravel mine right next to where people live, and you know, a, a facility like the Y, like you mentioned, coal mining, all these things. We should be moving forward, not backwards in this. So, you know, what do you, what are you hearing from Rocky View County and the council yesterday coming out of the meeting? Do you think there's even a chance that residents will be able to win this one again? Well, I hope um, in good conscience that the councillors, after watching that, that they cannot vote yes. But what was really um, within the first hour, so in historically, the, the, the council listens to the county staff. The county staff stated, and I, I heard this, and I, and I emailed some of the committee, and I said, did I hear that properly? They said that they have not reviewed the independent reports or the reports put forward by the residents, but they have reviewed the reports by the applicant. Now, understand the reports by the applicant are hired by the applicant. They're hired by Lehigh Hansen. So that terrified me. That was within the first hour. So we're thinking, if you don't even review those reports, 
So we're just hoping that, you know, I've been told, again, I'm not an expert, but there are experts that have been consulted, and they have said that Rocky View County has enough gravel in, in an area away from, you know, farther away um, where you're not going to destroy wetland. You're not going to have the density of population. So there are options. And what we are asking is that look at the information, become you know, learn about it, become educated on it. Again, I've never known this much. And there are people who are way smarter than me who, mm. have, who have submitted reports and, and help me understand this. But it is scary. It is very scary. And when you look at even the north of Calgary, I mean, this is just up the hill from Sage Hill, Nolan Hill. There's another development that, that's in the works. Right. Mm-hmm. Katrina, I'm wondering if you can give us some kind of an idea or what you know of the timeline ahead and, uh, you know, looking down the line, the next steps. I, you know, these videos went on for hours and hours. And, um, you know, I've had messages on Facebook, people in tears watching them. They were, they were beautiful. They were, you know, they were angry. They were sad. They were everything. So um, that's sort of where it ended. I believe that they are meeting again. It's, it's public. It's, um, you know, it, it's open. So you go to Rocky View County and you can watch live. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, residents do not have the ability to communicate, though the applicant does. So the applicant is there. All the experts, all his experts are able to ask and answer questions. Mm -hmm. We are not. So again, I I believe that, you know, we can't be there in person because of COVID, but I believe that, um, you know, residents are not happy because they're sort of taking advantage of COVID. And in a situation where we're you know, so you mentioned, like, are, are we going backwards? In, in a day when we're talking about health, you know, this is about the health of our community in every single way and the mental health. Yes. And now you want to do this? I mean, we are, that would be going backwards. So in, in all good conscience, um, you know, I, I almost want to say ethically, you, you can't vote yes. So, um, you know, kids are asking, if everybody's against it, why would it even be considered? And I just looked at my kids and I said, that's a very good question, isn't it? You guys are the future leaders and you're asking that? (laughs) So uh, next steps, people are saying there should be a decision today. And so, you know, we're just, uh, I'm just going to be drinking my coffee all day and and sort of shaking a little. On edge, waiting for an answer. Well, hopefully the power of the people. I mean, it's not like you're being unreasonable. They can move move the gravel quarry somewhere else and and push it back a little bit away from people and away from, you know, polluting the area. So hopefully we get the answer that uh, we're hoping for as as citizens and that you guys have have done a great job to fight this. So thanks for joining us with an update. I I appreciate uh, chatting this morning. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate your time. Katrina LeMay-Done. 909 on the morning news. While office meetings and job interviews may be virtual these days, there are still ways to look both professional and appropriate through the screen. With some tips on how to virtually look the part, we are joined by Amelia McLaren, Team Lead Recruitment Solutions with the Bowen Group. Good morning to you, Amelia. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for for joining us. So I guess uh, out the gate here, are you telling us that sweats and a T-shirt may not be appropriate for a video-based job interview? If you can believe it, it might not be. <laughs> um, I mean, there has been some discussion around this, especially with, you know, how long people have been working from home, right? People are kind of getting comfortable in their environments. Um, but it is really important. You know, it's one of the first things as kind of a team lead in my recruitment team notice when we are interviewing someone is, you know, are they dressed professionally? And that's head to toe. Um, it's not kind of, you know, you're wearing that nice shirt on top and then sweatpants on the bottom. You know, you want to be able to kind of accommodate any 
situation that might arise. So standing up, for example, to grab your kids or an animal, you want to be dressed head to toe. It is still um, a professional setting. It is still a professional interview. We are still working with you and our clients and making sure that, you know, we're presenting the the best possible version of yourself to them um, comes through on those virtual interviews. And let's face it, too, you know, how you dress can actually translate to how you come across and how you feel about yourself, too. Uh, Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. If you put yourself in that situation where you are professionally dressed, your confidence immediately is, is boosted. And I've seen, like, the good, the bad, and the ugly with my virtual interviews. And you notice the difference immediately in when someone's put the effort in, both in in their confidence, in their presentation. And, yeah, so it affects not only your appearance, but your confidence in the success of that interview. Amelia, what about the the background that I choose to have, you know, behind (laughs) me during these conferences? Is that important? I mean, could, could an employer make a judgment on me by the background? I mean, it is important. Um, what I look for, you know, you don't want that visual clutter. So not somewhere where there's like dirty dishes in the background or um, you're in your bed. I mean, choosing that kind of quieter space, maybe a neutral wall is better than, than a mess. And even if that mess or, cu- or sorry, um, if it's not an option to get to a more neutral place, there are now way more professional virtual backgrounds. I know when kind of Zoom and Teams first started, it was all these like fun ones like space and, you know, the beach. Um, But now they've shifted a little bit and understood that that's probably not the best choice. Um, So there are, you know, like office spaces you can use. And I'm completely fine with that. I would rather see that um, than than CMS. It just goes Mm -hmm. to show that you've got respect for, you know, the job interview, for the entire process. And it just adds a little more professionalism. Okay, so, you know, the the way we dress, the background behind us, any other tips for success if you're really looking for that job and it's important to you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's still going to be, with regards to kind of the interview itself as well, right, you still really need to prepare um, as much as you can for that. So getting the job description beforehand is key. Making sure, if you're working with a recruitment firm or not, making sure that you are preparing questions. You know, it's important to show that you've done your research, that you've invested time in this opportunity. Um, I like to say that tailoring your resume to the jobs is also really important. Um, I do realize it is tedious, especially now when when individuals are applying for multiple opportunities. Um, It does become a little tedious on that end, but if it's something that you are really interested in, please take the time. Um, It makes a huge difference. Amelia, I know that you're about the content because you're a recruitment specialist, but I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the technical requirements when it comes to the uh, Zoom and the, the Teams meetings and such, uh, Skype, if you will. Um, in it, And I've had a few like social meetings with friends on Zoom, and I, I don't like looking up people's noses. So uh, the angle and the lighting, how important are they uh, within you know, a job interview? Yeah, that's also really important. You're right. I don't like looking up people's noses either. But that's something that you know can be corrected immediately. So when you first get on the phone with the individual that you're interviewing with, ask them, say, can you see me okay? Does this look better? You know, there's no harm in that. And again, that just goes to show that you are invested in the opportunity. Um, People understand that it's not an ideal situation. And a lot of people, um, you know, employers, recruiters have become very comfortable with kind of rolling with the punches. Um, So yeah, just ask. And then they'll say, yes, this is a great angle or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just kind of to that technical point, you know, make sure that you test your systems beforehand. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
I've had times where it just hasn't worked um, or clients are calling me, it's not connecting. So it all comes back to that, that preparedness, right? So have the dial-in number just in case you need to dial in. Um, have a backup app on your phone if you're using your computer. It's just about making sure that you've got everything set up um, properly. And you look smarter than the next guy. There you go. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Like, yes, I want you. And I'm not sure how to put this one because it's it's a different dynamic when you're in person. You can read somebody's body language. Um, you you answer a question when you're asked. But if you're in a, like a an environment where there might be two or three from the um, recruitment team talking with you, I guess you should really watch when you're speaking because it's very easy to talk over people during these types of interviews, aren't? Isn't it? It is, and especially with like a lagging internet connection, for example. So it's just, you really need to, yeah, and you're absolutely right, those visual cues are completely different in person than they are um, virtually. And so just making sure that the person is done talking before you start speaking over, especially again, if there is um, that lag. And just paying attention, right? I mean, if if you can see someone is kind of distracted, um, you know, I don't like interviewing individuals who aren't kind of focusing on the screen. Even if you're kind of looking at yourself, everybody does that, and that's fine, as long as you're looking at the screen, Mm -hmm. not like out your window and kind of not paying attention. Put the effort in, put your pants on, put your best foot forward. Thank you for joining us, Amelia. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. That is Amelia McLaren, who is a team lead recruitment solutions with the Bowen Group.